it's still probably the most dramatic kind of moment of my life. I dealt with it really, really badly. And then I was in a sort of two year depression. You'd knock on someone's castle door, can I have a bed? And you give them a chicken in exchange for a bed. And that was a gift gift from mutual reciprocal gift. Uh, mm. While working at O2, he had an idea for a service that could cut out the fat. And after a tussle over names, he founded mobile network Gifka. And only like four or five minutes in did he go, oh, we've got your results back, you've got cancer. And I went, oh, I'm good. And he went, well, it's not very good, is it? <laughs> All right, sorry. Here are the keys to the brand. The brand had been valued by Telefonica at four and a half billion that year. Was what are you thinking when you hear that? Are you like, oh my gosh? Or are you like, yeah, I'm going here. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's absolutely right. Not. Get exercising, stop numbing the pain, yeah. get help, deal with those negative thoughts and just get out of that space, whatever you need to do to do it. I look back on some of those awful things that happened. I'm not glad, but I'm much better for it. I'm so lucky. We managed to actually have quite a good divorce. Tip for anyone getting divorced, be as nice as you can be. Forgive your partner. To live life in boldness, you must always sidestep those thoughts of fear. And above all else within your life, always appreciate that it's good to be here. Material there. I love the format. I love you guys. I love your poetry. So bizarrely, Web 2.0 inspired the last one. The new one's pretty wrapped up in Web 3. There is no kind of barrier. There is no customer in us and them. It's just one thing now. Greetings. I'm Ashley Samuels McKenzie. And I'm Charles Parkinson. And welcome to How I Became where we unveil the unscripted journeys of inspirational figures. Hello, my name is Gav Thompson, and this is how I became the founder of GifGaf, CMO of some uh, consumer brands, and most recently the CEO and founder of a new business called Paris Para. Here we go. This guest story starts out with traveling and adventure, with mum as a doctor and father as a vet. Who would have guessed advertising would be one of his first ventures? creating adverts of legend, including surfers, stallions, and waves, and moving from advertising to telecoms. What a change of pace. While working at O2, he had an idea for a service that could cut out the faff. And after a tussle over names, he founded mobile network Gifga. With a career of ups and downs, hopefully we can fit it all into the next few hours. Introducing Gav Thompson, founder and CEO of Paris Power. Wow, that's a lovely poem, and certainly better than my team have been churning out on ChatGPT recently. It's been coming up thing this week. But yes, that's a lovely poem. Can I, can I get that up on my wall, please? Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you. It's lovely to be here, guys. And um, yeah, looking forward to, to, to talking about stuff. Delving into the life Delving and mind stuff. of Gav. So your life, I think, it fits into a few chapters we yep. have, which we're going to go through, just to sort of preview it we've got the career flying chapter where things are going great into the into your 20s then we have heartbreak which we'll get to yes we have gift gap and the creation of that um we have almost losing your life that period and, yeah. um and and more heartbreak and a, and a damage to, to self-confidence, which you're famed for your confidence. Yes. So, and then this latest venture of a new startup. Yep. So, amazing yeah, life story to cover. 
um, which we'll delve into, but we're going to take things right back. And just to say, yeah, founder of, of GifGaf, what a revolutionary mobile network that came along and just got everybody to go, oh, finally, don't have to sign up to 24 months of this contract. Uh, there's a different way to do things. And that was really cool. Um, I got my grandma on it when it was locked down and we wanted to have video calls with her. I was like, okay, she needs a phone. She just needs data so that we can video call her. She's in her 90s and it was beautiful. Uh, enabled us to do that. It's a bit of service. Thank you very much. Um, so let's go back to where it all began. Uh, your your parents lived an interesting life. They did, yeah, they really did. Uh, could you share some of their amazing life experiences? Yeah, they're they're kind of the thing about my parents, particularly my mum, was that they would, and I think I think I've inherited that a sort of series of kind of contrasts and quite hard to sort of pigeonhole. So as you said, my mum uh, was a doctor, my dad was a vet, um, but they both found themselves in the army in the sort of mid-60s, which was quite a big deal for my mum. I think she's one of the very first female army doctors. That's amazing. Fully sort of male. And my dad also was, he he'd had a quite successful sort of private practice in Hampstead, I think, and he just got bored of trimming budgerigars. I was about to say fingers, but of course. And ended up in the army, and then they met in, in Singapore. And it was just, it just sounds sort of very romantic. They met, I think they got engaged on the second night and they were married six weeks later. Wow. Which none of their family friends had met because in those days you weren't traveling around much. So, yeah, mid 60s, they met, got married. And, they, and then they just lived this sort of crazy existence where my dad, although he was a vet, ended up um, you know, running the, the British Army Veterinary Regiment Corps. Um, but in the, and whilst doing that, ended up doing quite a work with the SAS, uh, ended up buying all the, all the cavalry horses. For the carry, uh, uh, ended up as kind of the, the Queen's honorary vet for a period of time, um, which was kind of bizarre. And then sort of pivoted, not his, my words, not his, and then ended up running a, a, a horse charity for, for you know, donkeys and horses in in Egypt and Jordan and Pakistan and India. So he, so and he was just a really interesting guy, quite a hard man to sort of pin down, but was just, just very different personality-wise to me, very... Just solid, good ethics, low low self confidence. Well, uh, inner inner confidence, but just was a very admirable man, and and just just was a. Well, at the time, I didn't really massively get on because you know teenagers, teenagers like me and dads like him, but was just a really interesting guy. And then my mum, who made a decision to sort of stick with him and put her career on hold as a doctor, ended up doing really crazy stuff on the side. So she she went from when we lived in Hong Kong for, Hong Kong for about five or six years, and she ended up being a, a radio DJ in Hong Kong and having her own two different radio shows. She did the equivalent of Desert Island Discs in Hong Kong. How cool! Which was just really cool and random. It was quite cool for me. Yeah. Uh, What's your mum do? Well, she's actually a DJ. DJ. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then she became a magistrate, and then she ended up as a quite a successful. Um, artist painting animals which again as you just go doctor you know dj magistrate artist so so and and that thing of not being able to pigeonhole them and being quite sort of shapeshiftery and being quite just open to adventures and just just real carpe diem both of them i mean the number of times that we 
my dad would come home and say, right, we're moving to to Germany on next week, we're moving to Ireland, or he went off to the Falkland War, or he disappeared with the SES for six months or went. That, that was just normal life. There was yeah. no, that kind of classic sort of just pedestrian, you know, we would, we were, I think we lived in 17 different houses over 20 years or something crazy and wow. So it was fun. And, and, and the, the good thing for me was, or one of the benefits, was a good thing was in those days, you know, the army paid for you to, to go to, you know, nice boarding schools and then would fly you to where your parents were. And I definitely had a very kind of privileged upbringing of the years I was in Hong Kong was predominantly my teenage years. We'd, you know, you'd, you'd learn how to sail, you'd learn how to scuba dive, you'd learn how to water ski, windsurf. You know, they, the the British Army in those days, you know, threw a lot of money at looking after the the kids and the families, and it was great. Albeit, sort of looking back on it, kind of crazy, crazy lifestyle, but a lot of fun. It, it sounds like your parents both lived about four lives, you know, but between them, they just did yeah, so they, many they things. Kind of did actually. Yeah. The, the, if you kind of go, if you that sort of pigeonhole thing of, you know, the female doctor, you know, dad is a vet, you, you'd, where you'd take that, those pigeonholes would not be, my mum is a DJ uh, and, and is a pretty amazing artist actually. And then my dad, I don't, I still don't quite know the fit between the SAS and being a vet or, or I, I, yeah, I, sort, I sort of do, but it was just, it's just kind of, kind of weird and being in the Falklands war and, and just, Crazy stuff, uh, and and then sort of jacking it in. He'd just been made the Queen's honorary vet, actually, um, somewhat bizarrely working for the new Queen's husband, Andrew Parker Bowles, sort of slight aside. Um, and he was just like, "This isn't really for me. I'm going to go off and work with a load of uh, homeless, you know, donkey owners in 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 Cairo." As you do, as, as you, you do, trade yeah. trade so, royalty for yeah. So that that sort of zigzaggy career and not taking it all too seriously and not. And being quite risk averse and not being just, they were very, well, I mean, they weren't hippies by any means, but they were just very sort of fluid and yeah. just, just chilled. And it, that, that I definitely kind of got that sort of what's the worst can happen, you know, don't want to be pigeonholed and, you know, qu quite, um, quite risk averse, so, sometimes too, sorry, quite, uh, what's obviously risk averse? Risk taking. That's the one. Quite risk taking and sometimes maybe. Too, too much so but but yeah they 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 set me up well for the career i've and life i've had mm. i think that's it. It, it knowing that for people to know that makes you know the rest of your life make sense in some ways and and, he, and the character you are um and so you you go to you go through boarding school you yep. go and when people say they manage to blag something it's often about getting into a club or getting tickets for something or getting a free, whatever hairdryer, but uh, you blagged your way into Cambridge. I did. How did that happen? Um, again, I sort of it was sort of bizarre, really. I mean, I'd, I'd, I was quite clever, and I've I've been blessed with both my parents, quite smart, and I'd so that I'd, I'd been bumped up here at school, basically. So I was I was having some time to play with. But I was also a bit too young to to really make any real life decisions. So, and I think yeah, one of the things again I'm blessed with is this: I've got quite a good right brain and left brain, so I'm, I'm both relatively creative and also quite sciencey. And so I'd 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 ended up choosing or having chosen for me some sort of ridiculous A levels: um, biology, physics, chemistry, maths A level, which ouch, 
ouch. Uh, and that was more, I think, because they didn't know what to do with me. And they're well, your dad's about your mum's, your, your mum's a doctor. That you must be doing that. Mm. And then uh, fairly early on in that process, I realised that I didn't want to do those A levels, and I was going to bluff them. And I did quite specially, actually, quite, quite amazingly. But I was did a drama AS level as well, and I thought, well, that's much more interesting. And then, and then with the A level results I had, I think I had, I just had a, just a couple of offers doing random stuff that I didn't really want to do. Um, and it was that kind of probably the first time I, you know, had to deal with failure is too strong a word, but you know, the the path wasn't going to work out for me. And I, I really, really wanted. I was really into drama, and I knew about Cambridge Footlights. So I was, I don't know, yeah, you know, just, I just sort of got into comedy as a teenager, and was just sort of went right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna become part of that and found through again pre the internet just just a bit of luck i basically found that there was one course you could do um which was at a college called homerton which used to be the the teaching college it's now a fully fledged member of the of the university but and at the time as a male because there weren't very many male primary school teachers if you could convince them that you were serious about being a male primary school teacher you, you could kind of get in it wasn't necessarily back door but you could get in and and so that was I was like okay well I'm going to try that so I uh, I applied and got rejected obviously immediately uh, and then and then started the process of sort of letter writing in the days when you wrote letters going well you know how about if I go off and do a month you know teacher training yeah you know, basically so I sort of blagged one side of the course the course was a half half education half drama mm. and so the education guy went okay fine uh, you, you're serious about being a teacher you can come but. But there's a problem with your A levels because A, they're and B, you have to have done an English A level mm. to get onto this course. And so then it was another thing of getting all my old teachers, English teachers, drama teachers to write the power of the letter to to to, to Cambridge and go, this guy's actually quite talented and da 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 da. And again, this loads of letters. It took about three or four months. Finally, organising all of this, asking them all, can you write? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Just just yeah. lots of blag. Yeah. And then finally, I the guy that the drama tutor said, "Okay, fine, okay, goes you can come, but I've got my eye on you because you're the only student ever to come that hasn't got English A level, and you know I'm you know I, I, I'm watching you, and then and then so I did blag my way in, and then and then within a week I got I blagged my way into some Footlights auditions, and then I managed to blag my way into becoming the the I think it was the assistant director of the Christmas show. And then amazingly, the director got ill. So my, my whole life is a series of these bizarre things. You've clearly she, got, got the gift of the gaff. Gift of the gift of the, the gaff. Ga so she got she got quite ill. And so halfway through the rehearsals, I ended up as the director of the Christmas show, aged eighteen, I think, which is which is just yeah, it's a big thing. So 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 yeah, I got lucky and managed to make I did, we had some very successful people in the I, I again I, I just surfed on the back of their success but yeah so I got into Cambridge uh and ended up as the director of Footlights and and did that and ended up with a reasonably good degree and and yeah and that that was probably if you, the sort of two or three three probably big professional leaps in my life one was getting into Cambridge which was amazing because you're in Cambridge with a crappy A-level results and then the whole Footlights thing does you know does 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 have a you know make it makes quite a difference the second thing was getting a graduate uh training sort of program place at Abbey because in advertising 
which we can talk about in a minute. Uh, and then the third was was actually getting into a, getting into making the jump from kind of agency side to client side to join O2 and, and just just joining them at the right time with the right boss. Those are the three moments where I think without those three, I, yeah, life would be very, very different. Mm. So AMV, you mentioned it there, AMV, yeah. BBDO, massive agency. Yes. Hugely successful. You get into there, we'll fast track a little bit and you, you're, you're making your way through the agency and it's 1998. Yeah. You're an account executive, which yeah. is maybe the equivalent in another industry of, of what, a system project I'm manager? Sort of, I'm sort of halfway up the ladder of, I mean, I'd got, I'd got very lucky, very, uh, perhaps luck, two bits of luck, sorry. One was when they were interviewing me for the AMV grad thing, which was quite, they put a lot of energy and effort into that. I think there was like two and a half thousand applications, for like three jobs, whatever. The reason I got the job is in the middle of the interview, the guy interviewed me, a chap called Max Burt, just like won the BT account, which was the biggest account in the UK. Remember that it's good to talk stuff. Yeah. And in the middle of the interview, his PA walked in and told him which he'd been the planner on, and he just went nuts. And he never remembered a single word I then said for it. You know, people remember feelings and associations. Yeah, yeah. In my, in when he was looking at the thing, he went, "He's the guy. He's the just guy." Because I don't know why. Association. Yeah. And then when I got there, they they divvied up. There's three of us, and they sort of divvied up their three main accounts: BT, Sainsbury's, and Volvo. And it was literally a lottery. And they gave me Volvo, and I was just really, really into cars. Mm. And and they didn't know that. And so within a few days. I, I was just, just Mr. Car Geek and helping the creators write these ads. And so got, again, luck. The, the BT thing was luck and the Bob thing was luck. So, so yeah, so I was, I was, I was halfway up a ladder and, and I worked with some amazing creators on Volvo. And then, and then we got a call one day, um, about uh, for the Guinness pitch. And and you're so yeah you're you're still in your mid twenties yeah. at this point you know quite young, um, and they go in this in this meeting who wants to take the Guinness account yeah and you have the audacity at this young age to go yeah, yeah I'll do it I've got that <laughs> yeah and can you just get, set paint the picture for people of what you know that's not the normal thing to do at that stage of your career and what what were you saying you were assigned you know what how big is this account i mean it was definitely it was massive and it was at the time the 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 account in london you know, ogilvy they had it for years that's where you could add with rooker hand they just and it, it was it was like the prime account that was both financially very rewarding for the business how much were we talking do you think i think in those days i mean those that was just the end of when things would would get you get paid on potential media, but it was probably worth about three and a half million in fees to the agency and mm. probably twenty, twenty five million in media. So it was a big deal. So what percentage of the their revenue would that be? Oh AMVs? Yeah. I mean it was it was it, I mean it was it was a big it was it was the biggest pitch that year probably okay. in the industry. And it was a it was a bit it was just, you didn't mess around with it. And I think I think in those days, and it's really hard because I look back on it and think I must have been an arrogant prick, but I just may have, and I'm sure that people who know me listen to sitting home, mate, you didn't, but I may have just managed to kind of, it's not sort of cheeky chappy, but I just never took it that seriously. And I and I had really managed to do well on Volvo and I managed to get some of the creators, Tom and Walt, who were the, the creative team at the time, to kind of, 
to know that it's always I do I do quite put a lot of effort into into people and getting on with people and being matey and a little bit of hopefully some charm and a bit of humor and stuff and I just I just managed to be quite matey with them uh and I think we Andrew Robertson had just become managing director now Andrew was he was a much better polished version of me but he was 30 still 30 he was 32 I think and he'd be made the MD of the biggest agency in Europe at the time and I think he just quite admired you know that sort of chutzpah of of someone that's going well I'm already you know the account director on probably our best account Volvo but I'm gonna have I'm gonna I remember he just looked at me and went he literally went what are you talking about you've already you're already account director on Volvo and I'm like yeah, but the re- and I just said to him, the reason I know good of all is I know about cars. Guess what? I know quite a lot about beer as well. And I, it was that sort of, it's that kind of, it's a, it is cocky, and it, I know it, I, I think in the past it's clearly come across as cocky, but I don't, I don't believe it's arrogance. I think it's a sort of, I'll give it a go. What's the worst that can happen? I'm backing myself. Quiet confidence. It's a it's a confidence, but it's 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 with a smile and a bit of. Um, it's just backing yourself. I think that's yeah. definitely one of my themes. And and he, I think he was just like, okay, well, no one else is, you know, no one else is doing this. And you you do this relationship with the creative team, who were the best in London at the time. And 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 you know, you know, they did all the hard work. I just you know took some glory off them. There was a very good planner who, um, Jeremy, who you know, so it was a team effort. But 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 yeah, well, I managed to to be the account director that won that pitch um i remember i won it we won it on our birth my birthday and it, i remember the wake up the next morning it was on friday they'd given us the account and just and it, this is why advertising is both great and weird because you are sort of lying there i was thinking i was 27 or something going gosh i'm now you know guinness and Volvo probably you know and you do sort of feel like mr billy big bollocks and actually but, but at uh, the time, as a twenty-seven-year-old, you're like, I am smashing it. Life, yeah, is was, yeah, good. I, 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 yeah. No, I did, I did, and I um, I did something quite funny. Um, just as an aside, so Andrew Robertson had just come from WCRS, who'd had the BMW account, and he was obsessed by BMWs and Ferraris, as was I. And on the Monday, he sort of said, "Call out to his office, went, mate. You know, this is amazing. Well done. And you know, how can we say thank you, sort of thing." And again, being sort of cocky, there was on the desk in his office was a, a book of so the BMW M cars, right? That he'd obs- and I was I hadn't planned this, and he said, you know, how 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 can we thank you? Just pointed at the book, just sort of jokingly went, well, one of those would be nice. Uh, and again, you just no one would have said that. I think at the time, our company car was like a Volvo 440. Oh, you not the book? You meant the car? The car? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, the car. And he goes, what do you mean? And I went, um, like an M3 or something. And he went, he sort of laughed and just sort of went, oh, I'll get back to you. And then about 24 hours later said, okay, the CFO's away that week, which he was. Um, finance director's away. I've spoken to Terry, who was the guy that used to run the car fleet for us. If I've agreed with Terry, if you can find, if you can get a BMW M3 on the fleet before the finance director comes back on I'll sign it off, kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> oh, nice! Uh, amazing, and that was very kind of Andrew Robertson. Yeah, he was very good at that sort of bit of a rule breaker himself. Bit of a. So I then had to find the a BMW M3 that was available that week in London to buy, and 
So what, you're calling up dealers? Like every freaking BMW dealer. <laughs> they, they, they just come out and they're like, no, no, good luck. It's a year wasting this. And then I found one at a BMW dealer in Fulham that was a cancelled order and it was the, it was bright purple. It was like, it was this metallic purple with white leather interior and the guy had already pimped it up with this sort of massive exhaust and wheels. Exactly <laughs> what you wanted. Yeah, exactly what I wanted. And it was, uh, it was literally, I said to Andrew, so I found this one and he's like, well, Better get it, mate. And and it was it was so not the car you'd want because it would look ridiculous. But it was like it's either that or you're you're going to get another Volvo. So I it arrived on the Friday, and it was just so embarrassingly. <laughs> but but it was still an M3. But my mates, everyone just took the piss, and three weeks later, it got nicked. Uh, oh, 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 nicked. And they stripped everything out. They stripped the seats, the engine, everything. They just left the purple bodywork on these bricks in Balham. Uh, like, you get for having a purple car, yeah. Get. With a big exhaust. <laughs> Sorry, that's a hell of a tangent. I love that. You said you put your hand up and thought, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah. Mm. Well, it went pretty amazingly. It did, yeah. Considering. Um, it did. We'll play this. We'll play this somewhere on screen now. Tick, followed, talk, followed, tick, uh, followed, the Guinness talk, Surfer ad. Yes. Is what came out of this this uh, this pitch. And you were yeah. account exec on this. What is known as one of the yeah, most famous, who you are. Here's some say the greatest ad of all time. It's right up there in the list of, of best ads of all time lists. Yeah. Um, one, you, one achievement. How had what happened? Very small. I mean, I was, I was, with all his um, so the story was, um, uh, the, the Guinness guys, you know, put the cat out of the pitch and they had a strategic problem, which was, uh, the big volume opportunities for drinking Guinness is a Friday night. And they weren't, they were being outsold by Stella because guys at the bar, busy bar, too long to pour. You know, the whole double pour thing. Mm -hmm. They were just like, I, I can't be asked without, I'll get a, I'll get a Stella. And the, the clever bit, which nothing to do with me, uh, the creative guys, Tom and Ward were like, well, let's, they didn't drink either one of them, but, but they were going, well, let's, well, how do you turn the negative of waiting into a positive? Cause you can't speed it up. But you've got to you've got to you've got to manage that expectation. And and the the big idea was, we'll go from sort of being impatient to anticipation. And mm -hmm. so you're waiting for this amazing event, and then you get into, well, what what are things that people anticipate? Uh, and very quickly you you come up with a list of them and things like sex, which clearly you anticipate. You can't talk about that in alcohol advertising. So you end up with quite a small list and. Again, the client, you know, I've always believed clients get the advertising they deserve, right? Mm. The client was talking about Addy Fennell, genius client, probably one of my best ever clients. We actually had it as a poster. So the guys had written good things come to those who wait. The original ad, which I had helped quite a lot on, was about how long it took to pour a pint of Guinness, 119 and a half seconds. We sort of made that up. We, we did make that up. Um, but they, we had a poster of just a guy with a surfboard next to him looking out to sea, shot from behind good things come to those away and the client went that's it because that's the simplest idea of anticipation can you turn that into a tv script mm. um which was a very ballsy move on his part and and so we made the, the original sort of swimmer ad which i still think is a lovely piece of film with with you know it's a beautiful the guy racing the pint the old man and he his brother races him and he lets him cheat um um shot by jonathan closure genius and then the second one was was surfer, and again, it was a team effort. Like the the guys really, really, really needed the horses in them. 
in it the that doubles the production budget mm. most people on the team including the research agency we're going we'll take the horses out you don't need the horses that you know they we'll just do it without the horses uh, and again fair play to the client he he was like no we need you know we need the horses and, not to be the same uh and 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 jonathan combination of jonathan and the guys and a great client it, it it just again it all kind of came together and one of the funny things about that was the music the left field track which lots of people loved at the time but that only came in 24 hours before the end of the process it was going out for st patrick's day and we t we had a different track on it um and, and it, we were really running out of time and it was like a sunday evening it was going on a monday night for tuesday morning st patrick's day and and yeah just someone happened to walk past who had been working on left the new left field album and anyway that 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 it was it all came together but but yeah and it was it, it was amazing and it was one of those moments where a few of us and again i was a tiny part of that had just had this belief that this this is going to be worth fighting for both both the, the horses the original idea the music uh, and you know against a lot of naysayers a lot actually some of them big parts of the process and the agency were going famously literally like, oh, just take the horses now um and and yeah and and then to get it made and it was it, you know the research agency didn't want to make it Mill Brown who was researched she said said it's to you know the media agency didn't want to do it I remember having nearly having a fight with one of the media agency people in the taxi because he said because we wanted to launch at 199 seconds they were going oh, just do it as 30s so so it was it, when it finally launched and did amazing things for the brand did amazing things commercially and still now gets voted one of the best ads of all time. Mm my little part of that makes me proud but also the lessons i learned were quite important yeah which is you, you sometimes you know you've got to fight for things you believe in and and you have to take a stand and and you know the journey part of the journey is having people disagree with you and and that that was that that was a really good lesson to learn relatively early on in my career actually and that's interesting because that will come up later in in the in the the naming <laughs> Get, oh, cool. get, yeah. We'll get to that. that one. We'll yeah. get to that. Yes. Yeah, that, that was great to hear that the the kind of uh, back end to that that ad because I remember seeing that as a young person and just being captivated. What is this? It was one of those. I mean, you I, you know, so used to sound nostalgic about those days. It was one of those ads that when it used to come on in the pub, people would stop talking. Yeah, they'd be, and when it when it was on in the cinema again, people would stop talking, and you'd hear people go. The sad. I love the sad, and and it just it didn't really behave like an ad. It's just you know it's a really simple idea with some quirkiness around the music and the and the whole idea of what he's saying. The horses were at the time really cutting edge, you know, CGI less so now. And it just it just all kind of worked. And and right at the heart of the idea was a, a consumer truth, which is I don't mind waiting for this because it's worth the wait. So it's. It's one of those few moments where the business problem, we've got to sell more pints on a Friday night, met a customer insight, we have to turn the negative into positive anticipation, met an amazing sort of creative idea that was sort of brutally powerfully executed, i.e. long time lengths, lots of media budget. And, and you know, even now you go, God, if only more people knew that, advertising would still probably be, be more impactful and more enjoyable and more successful than the crap we have to deal with these days so your your career's flying at this yeah. point 
doing great. Um, we the next chapter of your life, you moved to New York. Yes, and you're just feeling on top of the world. Yeah. You know, you've had a purple BM. It got nicked, but that can't stop you. Your Cambridge can't stop you. You no. still got in. Yeah, and 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 you're flying. And yeah. you have a girlfriend at this point. Yep, and you think this is the person I want to be with for the rest of my life. Yeah, I was about to ask her to marry me. Walk us through the events of, of what happened. I mean, it was, it, it's a word that I often, I don't think I really know the definition of it. I was talking about someone last night, actually, uh, which is hubris. Um, I, I think I know what it means, but I don't really, but I think, it, I think it was this, what I'm about to say. So I was 29. I had had this crazy gifted life, right? Amazing childhood great boarding school in the uk flying back sports to, to hong kong for free surfing lessons flag away into cambridge managed to get into footlights working in flights always you know would end up very famous successful absolute a-listers and they were all my mates i was also the well, i should have mentioned that the college i went to the teaching college was also 95 percent women you know tough gig um got into mv which probably was one of the best agencies in town and then done Volvo and then Guinness and was just, you know, just such a really big bollocks. I I was probably a horrendous prick at the time. I'd like to think I wasn't, but you don't, people listening to this don't need to write in to confirm that. Um, and then, but AMV were really good at the career progression thing. And they'd said, right, you know, go to New York. Biblio uh, New York was obviously the central Biblio and, and learn about planning and, and, and then come back in a couple of years and, you know, I think I think I was I was about to yeah, anyway. I think I, I was destined for great things. You know, both Michael Bork and Andrew Robertson were and Silla were all you know, I was I was in the yeah, they were I was in in a group of people who were part of the future of the agency, I think. Mm. Um and so I went to New York, again all on the sort of BBDO thing, amazing the whole thing was amazing and I was uh and it was all pre planned, so it was go and become a, one of the bizarre one of the planning directors of BBDO New York. I wasn't a planner, but didn't seem to bother anyone. I was just a sort of English guy. You, and you can milk that stuff a little bit in, in New York. Mm. Certainly you could in those days. So walking around in cricket jumpers and the old <laughs> rat may, may or may not have appeared. Um, or even the old cricket bat may have been in my arms. The old meeting. Who knows? No one had some white phones back then. Um, but I was playing up to this thing. And, and I'd taken my girlfriend with me, English girl, who I'd been going out for a year. It was definitely at the time I was like, this is it, loving my life. And, and and I was just, everything was so amazing. I was living in this warehouse apartment in the West Village. I was walking to the office, getting paid a ridiculous amount of money, living with this beautiful girl who I th thought was, I was about to ask her to marry me. Uh, and, you know, and life was amazing. I mean, really like, didn't get much better than this. Um, and, then, and then I found out, you know, by, you know, unfortunately, looking at a, a laptop she'd left open with an email there that she was having an affair with somebody else. And, and your emotions when you saw that email, man. I was, it's still now, it's funny, it, it's still probably the most dramatic kind of moment of my life. Just that, just, just reading it and just going, wow, you know, I was, I booked, we were going to Bali in about three weeks. We booked the flights, booked everything my mate was going to come to Bali and for the, I was going to propose to her 
And it was, I, it was amazing. I literally thought my life was perfect. And then when you find out the woman you love is having an affair, it was really crushing, actually. And I dealt with it really, really badly. And and that didn't help. And I sort of threw her out. I, I just, what did you do in that moment? You saw the email. I just was like, I couldn't believe it. But, and I kind of, and again, this is hubris, right? I kind of thought she must, she, she's making a terrible mistake. I mean, this is an insight into my hubris, arrogance, whatever was, I just was like, well, she's, she, has she gone mad? She has, how could she leave this? Yeah, you were flying it all. Yeah. Literally, with hindsight, it was so, it was all this sort of, material success and a lot of it and, and yeah we lived in a freaking unbelievable lifestyle she wasn't working at the time and what i with hindsight you go well that can't be great for i think she was 25 that's not she doesn't make her feel good about her life but the arrogance of hubris of me at the time was like well you know she doesn't need to work she's she's living the life of luxury and, and that that was all wrapped up in that sort of no one wants to be you know, a kept woman, particularly that age in New York, and 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 but but yeah, at the time you just go. I th I was like, well, she must have, she must be having some kind of mental episode. Sort of li literally threw her out the house and said, get get. It's so arrogant, you know. G go back to England, sort this business out with this man. Was she in the house when you saw the email? No, no. It was about five minutes. I had about five minutes to work out a plan. Yeah, and it was just shit. A and I did sort of around a very dramatic it was all very shakespearean east ending i mean it was horrible it was really lots of drama i shouldn't be looking at her emails which didn't help and it was like go, go, go and sort this out i'll you know and then i'll be come back and you know it's like a victorian you know go go off and sort and i'll be waiting for you and guess what she never came back and um hence married the guy and there's you know with him and you know it's got lovely family and yada 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 but but I, that sort of finding out, throwing her out the house, and then realizing, a, that I shouldn't have thrown her out the house actually because that was a mistake. I should have tried to work it through. That I should have reflected that most, or not most, a good part of why she was behaving like she was behaving was because of how I was treating her, and she wasn't, she didn't feel empowered, and she wasn't, you know, wasn't equal part. All all the things you look back and go, hmm, dull. But at the time, it was it was a, and and then and then it was just a horrible journey of just going from what I thought was perfect to what I thought was wasn't rock bottom by any means but it was it was my little rock bottom of mm. losing the woman I loved making some bad decisions and then doubling down on those bad decisions so I having thrown her out of the house and sent her back to London I then followed her back to London so jacked in all my job jacked in the whole BBDO career path thing mm got back to London again still with this notion that she was gonna and she never did and 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 then I was in a sort of two-year probably a depression but didn't realize it and what was going on why, why? I would say that actually I I was that's probably the point where I am embarrassed about my behavior I think up until that point I was charming and you know uh I got a you know I was decent. I think for those two years, I mean, I had a great job. I was manager part of TBWA, mm. you know, and I just, just, I was, I dyed my hair white. I bought a Porsche convertible and I just, just, just bent. I mean, just, 
just all the cliches. I mean, I was living that cliche of guy who's probably having a, some kind of breakdown, depression, but isn't going to run up to it. It was sort of horrible. Absolutely. You could go back in time and speak to yourself. Now, what would you say to yourself? I'd sort of say, don't be a um, I'd say, I'd say lots of things actually, which is, I was just very wrapped up in all this after-directed crap, all the, these, you know, the, the things that I thought were important, which were job, career, money, success, status. I'd, I'd got so involved in that sort of hall of mirrors with, and I was lucky enough to be sharing it with a woman that I love, but, but hadn't really checked in on her and how she felt and whether this was she was enjoying it as much as I thought she was and and then and then and then and but then even when it sort of then was collapsing I was still chasing that and and you know I, I, you know it wasn't terrible I mean but did I, it become an obsession to try and get her back was that life became you know, all about that incredibly um no I knew no I mean I knew quite I knew I mean again it's all very tragic I remember I came back my godmother died. I came out for my godmother's funeral, and it was again all. It was all just everything felt so Shakespearean and Eastender. There was lots of tears and gnashing of teeth, and and but I knew I'd I knew by then I'd bossed it up, and then it just became a sort of eighteen months of self pity, and it was just horrible. I ha I hated that period. Um, did it affect your work as well? Do you know what? I mean, you know, I mean, it sort of did in that I ended up getting fired. So I mean. Yeah, that's one. Sorry, thing. sorry, that's what you're getting at. You knew that, didn't you? Uh, yeah, and no, I, I fell out with um, Trevor Beatty and got fired. Um, so yeah, of course it did. I mean, I was just mentally, my mental health was not right, and I was, I was just, I hadn't dealt with it, and I was still, I hadn't re, I hadn't re, um, recalibrated. Mm -hmm. um, that was it. Yeah, I, I was now still doing the same thing, expecting a different result, mm -hmm. and that's we all know what that defines, and. Yeah, it was tough. Have you been able to heal from that experience? Yeah, it took a while actually. I mean, I had I I went off to Australia, um, having been fired, and and that that was that I had sort of six months sort of out of work and just travelled around with a really good friend of mine who'd his boyfriend had been killed in a car crash, and so we we had a quite a few months, uh, Lisa and I, to just sort of grieve and and re calibrate and and that and australia is great for that actually just you know new fresh weather and had a job it was a really really good lesson but it took it took an extremely long time to really learn the lesson you mm -hmm. see what i mean i it, it is only you know another year or two later that i really so i was into australia for two years so it's probably about end of three or four years i finally worked out what had happened my my accountability for it, my part in the story, and and how I should do things differently moving mm -hmm. forward. What would you say to someone who's gone through something similar and may not be identifying those signs in themselves yet? It's a really good question. Um, look, I'd, I'd say yeah, it's obvious stuff. I'd say the the worst thing you can do in those situations is is kind of dive into an unhealthy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think my advice would be. You know, just try and try and not use the normal things that most of us use to numb the pain. To numb the pain, because that, that that is a fool's error, and you will you'll get bitten harder later. Um, and I think the other thing, which is an obvious lesson, is is 
the answer to most of happiness is not the things I thought they were. Yeah, the, the money, the car, the job, the job title. You know, they're they, they, they're great and they're they're an important part of people like me's self worth and feeling validated and successful. But they are by no means the core. And when you get it wrong, which I did, I I was obsessed by that and forgot my partner in the middle. You 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 just you 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 have to sort of learn those lessons and and sometimes you know you you can't be taught those lessons until you've gone through it but coming out of it you've got to go what just happened you know what what should I learn from what are the teachable moments and and you know working yeah I'm, I think advertising is just it's it, it, it's it's less so nowadays but it was quite guilty in those days of allowing lots of people to think that their life was amazing because of all the accoutrements that you got um but yeah I mean, it was good i'm glad you know it's like all these things it's like when i had got cancer i'm glad i had it it was time but i'm a better person for it so you your time ends in australia you you're working at a startup which is like an offshoot of amv is that correct no i was i was actually the planning director of publicist mojo in australia okay which again was a really really good job i'd met my future wife in australia south african lady nicole and actually again probably had the more stable healthier version of the life i've been living in new york right mm. um so life in new york was was the crazy and was truncated or stopped by my girlfriend financials on faith and then in, in australia similar but very different you know amazing you know the thing in australia they used to do this thing they don't do it anymore it's such a shame the government used to encourage POMs to come to Australia, and they you could you could claim your rent out of your gross um, salary, so basically tax-free rental. So everyone who works advertising lived in this freaking ridiculous places. So I lived on this in a place called Willamalu Wharf. Uh, my next door neighbour was Russell Crowe. It was obscene, but because you you know you were you were living somewhere you'd never be able to afford, and what that meant, apart from knocking around the Russell never did that actually but we just bump into him in the car park but you'd you'd walk to work and if those of you know sydney you walk through the botanical gardens past the rock press to the rocks where mojo's what and i just met and got engaged to this fantastic woman and life was amazing sydney's amazing and then and then that was interrupted by a call from some ex-colleagues from amv and a few of my other mates going we've just set up an agency we're looking for one more partner called campbell doyle die cdd would you consider coming back to London and being a owner, co-owner, partner in this business? And I said, I said, yeah, yeah. And 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 again, that that was it wasn't a mistake by any means, but it certainly didn't end the way I was thinking it was going to end. Because mm. you know, when you're in advertising in those days, the, the peak of the pyramid was having either your name above the door. Uh, like you know, CHI had just launched, BCCP had just launched. We, we were the third that launched of those three, and the only one that no one's ever heard of since. Uh, and to be, and uh, although my name was not above the door, I was in about a year later, rather than being at the found founding stage. You you go well. This is it, right? This is this is what we've worked for, guys. Um, and 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 again, it wasn't it wasn't quite what it what I thought it was going to be. And that was because I hadn't really done my homework. And that's one of the themes of, of my personality is, you know, I'm very impatient and I'm 
which is can be really good and can be really bad, and it can be great means I can get done, and I'm very good at making things happen quickly. In this instance, in, you know, it, it probably meant I I liked the idea of being a part of an agency. I hadn't really gone through it properly, and maybe if I had, might have made a different decision. But yeah, I left the Sydney Sky to London to work with four of my ex-colleagues. So you have this three years, yep. you know, being, you know, an owner of a company, yep. um, but you end up at O2. How yep. did that happen? Um, and we're getting on to the, the origin story of... Yeah, the origin of Gift Gaff. As I sort of said earlier, I, I hadn't really... And this is a theme of my life, right? And again, both good and bad. I hadn't really thought it through. Uh, this is my life. And I hadn't really thought through what it meant to be a part of an agency. I hadn't really done proper exploration on the equity structure of the business. We'd already been, Omnicom had already taken a 51% stake in the business, which if you think about it now, you, it's a big chunk. Big yeah. chunk, and it gives them all the rights of exit, and they can just take the exit's price and yada, yada, yada. So, you know, and and at various stages on that journey, you know, we, we'd started off with five partners, uh, which I was one, and it was kind of interesting. What One by one, one of the partners would get culled, um, and I thought I was the third to get culled in year three. Uh, and, and you could just tell it was a, you know, we had three great partners who were all incredibly talented and in any other world would have been their own creative directors but but in, you know we had three of them and it, anyway it, it it was just a watching a slow motion kind of just just sort of your dreams of it, it was very slow motion but anyway it, I, I i we knew i knew it wasn't going to work out and um you sort of dreamed that all you and your mates were all going to build this great company together and you'd be successful and it sort of yeah. wasn't yeah i mean i i, exactly I thought um so yeah, so so look, you, you you I was looking at CHI, I knew Johnny Hornby, he'd be my boss at TWA, I knew I knew those guys, I knew Goldie Well from university. I was looking at BCP because I'd known the WS guys quite well. And you just you just so, and when it wasn't panning out, uh, you just gotta make a call and, and at the time I, I knew that I was the third guy gonna get cold. And and it was sort of fine. So so, um, and then I got a call one day from a, from a headhunter about O2 and it was, it was weird. I was, I was very close to getting a job in the music industry, actually. I was very close to getting a job at Sony BMG doing their brand partnerships. And I thought that was amazing. I mean, literally it was like kind of my dream job. And the day they would sign the contract, the CEO got fired sometime in the summer of 2008. And again, it was kind of, ah, uh, that, that felt really right on my street it was kind of music which is probably my real passion and it's quite a lot of glitz which i still quite liked anyway and, and then i got the sort of call the week later from a headline about o2 and i was i remember just going she said i was in slough and i was just like the office had just you know i'd just be out the office had, I, I knew the office quite well you know so you're kind of going Wernham hog and it actually is on the same place not quite I, sydney it's not sydney and anyway it was one of those mm, and then i met Kath Kears, who was the ex-CMO, who's probably the only person that will make a claim to be the founder of O2. I mean, it wasn't like that, but she's certainly, her the DNA of O2 is, is all about Kath. And I just, she one of those amazing moments. I met her for her first interview and just totally kind of fell in love with her. And 
we had one of those unbelievable moments where in the first interview, we managed to craft the brand strategy for the next five, six, seven, eight years of actually in that first interview, which is all about communities and being better connected. And it was, I kind of knew in that, I knew in the first interview, because I was scribbling away and we're not this. I kind of knew that we were, we'd probably, we were probably going to work together. And then, so she hired me and we, and we were worked together for a, a long time, actually. Um, so yeah, no, she was amazing. So, so I joined O2 because of CAF and, and then and Ochi was, you know, was one of those special companies that, that if, as your first client job was unbelievable because it knew the power of its brand more than virtually any other company I've ever worked for because it had been BT Solnet, terrible brand, and they'd been number four on the market and they'd done a sort of management leverage buyout and bought it for a quid, I think. And at the time, every, all the papers had said, well, you know, massive waste of money, even at a quid or whatever it was. And and the team, of which Kath was one of them, went, no, we, we're going to just, we're going to rebrand as O2, but that, it's nothing to do with the O2 and the bubbles. It's all about the values, the people, our view of customers. And so when I got there, sort of three years in, they'd gone, they're already number one. And my job was to kind of go, right, take us to the next level. But because I was the brand guy, I was the head of brand strategy. Everyone, everywhere you went, you were kind of like, Brown's guy's coming. And it, you were every single meeting, the CEO, Matthew Key at the time, gave me this sort of metaphorical when I joined the first. He said, Here are the keys to the brand. The brand had been valued by Telefonica at four and a half billion that year, which again was the, one of the first times that a brand had been valued on the balance sheet. And he's got, Here are the keys to this four and a half billion pound asset. Your job is to grow it. And so it was just a very different way of looking at brand. And it was what are you thinking when you hear that? Are you like, oh my gosh? Or are you like, yeah, freedom? Yeah, I've stuck my hand up at 27. This is me, mate. No, this is me. I'm going, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Not. I am the man oh, for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, and that's Let's make it 10. That's part of my thing, which is both my strengths and weaknesses. I, I'll give most things a go. I very rarely say now, I will back myself. But I also don't take it too seriously. And that combination somewhere when it works in Guinness, or I think in the case of O2, you're like, yeah, I've got that. Um, and so, yeah, I joined and had a really good run. Worked with some amazing people. VCP were a great agency. Charles Valance, legend, still is. And, and again, with the great boss and the great environment, managed to help them on their journey with a new brand strategy and a whole new brand campaign. And then had this idea for this thing that became gift gift so so while at your time at o2 yeah. you know you created things such as a very famous line in o2 marketing hit it ash we're better connected that is exactly how to say it the comma was always really important because a lot of people never saw the comma like we're better connected we're and it's no that it's the comma guys and I, again <laughs> I, I thought this was a work of genius and, and I was very excited when they came back to it recently because they dropped it for about six, seven years and like fools. Um, but yeah, no, again, teamwork, VCP, great, Charles, great. Uh, and this is also where you met Dougie, Julian Dougie. I met Dougie, yes, who your previous guest. was on the show and introduced us. And, Did you, yeah, the Dougie story. So just again, a little aside. So I, I joined uh, O2, primarily as a client actually, but and but Susie, who was the client, she was kind of complicated. She went off and did something else, and and they brought in Shardy Halliwell, 
who and anyway for for a period of time for about four months i was the kind of main client for o2 with bcp and poor things for them i was my first ever client job still thought i knew a thing or two about ad agencies and and being an account man or planner i'd been in both a suit and a planner so when i joined and i think to be fair to me BCP had every every agency goes in cycles and i think they'd been they'd suited in their client for years i think they probably weren't on their a game uh and i joined and kath and i had this kind of boss romancy thing i don't know what you call that but anyway not in a weird way and she was going to like gav you know you've got to get out there and you've got to this whole being better connected it's so i was a bit of an ass to be honest and i probably again overplayed my hand with bcp and long and the short of it was i sort of put put it up pitch the account uh just just I, 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 yeah i mean, again i'm not really proud of it but but i basically said look come on guys either crack it or we'll we'll have a pitch and and that you know and so they had to work through christmas again not proud of this and they did crack it actually um and they that's when we came up we're better connected and but but for that three or four month period when i joined which is like september through to january when i pitched they were like this guy's a nightmare they must have not no, met you. You were not popular at that time. No, I was not popular at all, mate. And I remember sort of having all of them, VCC and P, trying to kind of mark me off. I remember they took me to lunch at the Ivy, all three of them. And it, 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 with hindsight, anyway, it doesn't really matter. But they, they basically said, he's a nightmare. We need to fix him. And they did some work, research, and they found that I was mates with Dougie. Um, who who we all know, Dougie's ex guest of yours, but he 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 was doing he'd done very well in 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 advertising, and so when they were looking for someone to man mark me, they found Dougie, and so yeah, he he joined and he I was his client for seven years, and we had a really really good time. He was great. I was a I think I was a fairly demanding client, but I also, you know, I I, I think we had a good time and I think we we got on well. Let's get to gift gap. Yeah yeah yeah, and then one day, for one day. So I'm there in Slough, done the new campaign, slightly missing the days of going on shoots to Hawaii or South Africa or whatever, and said to my boss, Tim, can I go to this conference in San Francisco? He was lovely, went, yes. I went there, it was a web 2.0 conference. It wasn't very good. And I was sort of sitting there and it was just boring. And I had one of those one of these books and I was noodling in the back and it was about web 2.0, which was all about micro communities being enabled by the web and i guess the lesson if there is one in this story is it's actually quite good to just keep your ear to the ground and and it was a big thing at the time summer 2008 it was the obama campaign TripAdvisor had just been launched wikipedia had just been launched twitter had just got into the mainstream and those three four things are all powered by web communities mm. and i and i was just sitting there and noodling in the back of the book and i wrote um, I wrote a few things, but I wrote this word mutuality. I thought that was a good word for how you'd run a business. And I wrote, um, the, the, I put two web 2.0 and then across the 2.0 and I put O2 and I put basically a two a dot zero. So I took O2 and reflected it as 2.0. Genius. Genius, Genius. And then wrote the, the brand strategy, which is all about mutuality, about customers doing the marketing, customers doing the customer service, customers having 20% of the profits, customers owning, and wrote to it, and, and then she went back to London, and they said, how's the conference go? It was shit, but I've got this. 
And again, a lot of bosses would have gone, yeah, what is that? But, but Tim Sefton, my boss, and then Ronan, the CEO, kind of just got it. And we're like, that's really interesting. Uh, and this idea that you were going to basically talk to this sector of the, of the customer base who didn't love any of the brands. There's about 11%. They were kind of, we call them digital nomads, I think. And they, they were very digital able, but they just didn't, they didn't like the big brands because they felt they were a bit ahead of them and they didn't really like this sort of slightly patronizing deal that was going on those days where you'd get all these offers and, and in their mind there was just the red one, the orange one, the pink one, mm. blue one, and we don't really care, but just give us one of them and we 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 kind of resent for all this free pizzas, two for one tickets, the O2, we don't give a about that. So with that in mind, you kinda of go, Well that's eleven percent of the base, that's a that's a chunk, um, who are brand disloyal. There's a thing called Web 2.0, which is all about enabling communities through the web. You kind of go, interesting. And then the third bit of it was, I was having one of my many midlife crises at the time. I could, this was the motorbike one, where I'd decided to get into biking. I bought a, bu a bike, managed to pass my test. What bike did you buy? I bought a, uh, I originally bought a KTM um, Super Duke 990, but I was way too fat for that. And then the second bike I bought was a BMW 1200GS. Way too fat for that. Not that, but too fat, basically. And and I, I couldn't get the suspension settings right because of my fatness. And and I was a bit embarrassed to keep going to the BMW dealer and go, and they're literally going, bring it out of the bliss. Like three of this massive wrench. And, um, and I was just embarrassed. Uh, and and what I've learned was this thing web forums, and so I was on these BMW bike web forums going, I'm a BBG, big bone gentleman, whatever the expression is, right. i.e. really fat, can you help me? And I got all these really good videos back and feedback back, and yeah, do this, do this, do this. And actually, that was the weird and stuff, Gifgaf, realizing as the web, there's all these kind of geeky communities out there who will help you without any money changing hands, they were better responses than I was getting from BMW dealership. I was getting them within five minutes and the effort and energy they were putting into it, that was the light bulb moment going, okay, if we, if we, if we're talking to these guys who were quite geeky anyway, let's find the uber geeks in this group who know more about phones than we probably do. I knew that most customer service queries were, were about how do you get your music from an iPhone to an Android or how do you, I knew they were quite functional and that these guys were probably know more. I knew that, through market, through web marketing, there was a community-based thing. I kind of knew that was a lot of cost in it, and it was just it was just a sort of let's take the insight from being a fat biker. Let's take some of the learnings from Web 2.0. Let's take some of the cost out, and let's talk to these guys like they're peers, not we're paternal, and let's get effectively all the marketing done by members and the customer service done by members, and let's make it really cheap and really simple and let's do it and let's call it 2.0 because that's O2 but flipped and let's look at the numbers and they're really positive because you've taken the cost out the cost being you know the, the handsets the marketing the call centers the shops the contract subsidies take all that out you're left with a very cheap model mm -hmm. everyone was really happy i then found out i had cancer tongue cancer in the middle of all this and again back to the guy who gave me the job at amv because of he got the BT. I went to do the final pitch for a gift gaff on my way to the cancer hospital to have my tongue removed. 
or half my tongue collapsed. And all the board knew that I was going, the OT board knew. Again, can't plan this. No. But so I, it was literally like, it was like a sort of funeral procession. I walked in and everyone knew that I was going to go and have my tongue cut out. And I, I, no one was in tears, but in my head, they were in tears. And I did this pitch and, and they're like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, we'll do it. Good luck with your tongue. And then I f***ed off for like three months. And by wow. the time... So you're pitching to O2. I pitched the board of O2, yeah. To say, can we launch... quids investment to build this thing. Wow. On the way to go to have my tongue removed. This is your cancer. final word. Yeah, your final word. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. It's yeah. literally... And, and it, I genuinely believe had that... I, just, I don't... Who knows? But I think that helped. Wow. Cause. Wow. So yeah, they, they approved it. Everything apart from the name. So just backtrack a little bit. What was the moment you found out you had tongue cancer? Um, I had moved house. Uh, I had private dental care, which, you know, up through the through work. And in those days, you had to, when you left from dentist A to dentist B, dentist A would give you like a MOT of your mouth. Mm. So you walk and when you take that piece of paper, go to see dentist B and they go, yeah, I'll take you on. And dentist A gave him this clean bit of health. Went to be a week later, and he went, mm, something under your tongue, a bit weird, we'll get it checked out, whatever. Forgot all about it, and then about eight weeks later, been on holiday for a few weeks in Spain, came back on a Sunday, there was a letter that was probably two weeks old, saying you've got to go to this appointment on a Tuesday to see a tongue specialist. Completely ignored it. Um, you ignored it? You didn't just go. didn't go, yeah, didn't go. And then the dentist, who obviously knew exactly what it was, uh, had called the, the tongue guy on the just after my appointment on the Tuesday. Said, "What happened, with Mr. Thompson?" I'm a bit worried about that. He goes, "Well, he didn't turn up." He then calls me that night. The dentist going, "Dude, you should have gone to that appointment." And I was like, "Well, I've just come out of holiday. I couldn't make it." He goes, "I'm going to get you an emergency appointment tomorrow. You got to go." And at this point, you're thinking, "Oh, this point we're going. Yeah, this is a bit tricky." But my mum was a doctor, as we know, and you know, we just think smoking. Yeah, I never smoked. One of the few vices I'd never, and it was. And so you kind of ignore it. And I was just still in this kind of, you know, world of just rushing around and feeling slightly kind of, um, you know, immortal or whatever. Went to the guy, he did a biopsy and said, oh, well, we'll it's been two weeks. I remember driving away, this is a bit gross actually, but I was, I was driving away from the thing and a piece of my tongue fell out of my mouth. Oh. That, that had, from the biopsy. And I remember like winding down the window, sort of flicking it out the window. Just, Little did I know that what was about to come, this would have been a minor problem. Well, I remember like, oh, my God, my tongue's worse. <laughs> and anyway, and then about a week after the, that, I was in a meeting, funny enough, a, a GIFGAF meeting, um, got a call and, and you know, unknown number, not unknown number, just press, and third time the call, it was the doctor saying, can you, I've had your results back from your policy, can you come and see me? And I was kind of, yeah, I'm, free next week and he was like oh, you could you come now and it was in oxford and i was in london and i was like what like now now and he goes yeah just can you kind of come now so i drove up and i got there quite late and it was like 6 7 p.m and they, the the guys were polishing the floor it's all very kind of i remember it being quite cinematic there's no one near the hospital and then he came in he came come in specially and his you remember him sort of putting more lights on and went into his room and he wasn't the cancer guy so because i'd ended up having to do this emergency thing he wasn't the guy that normally tells people you've got cancer, right? You're someone else. He was the sort of fill-in guy. And it, I felt really sorry for him afterwards because he, he clearly wasn't, this wasn't his thing. 
So he started sort of, sort of messing around with my mouth again, checking it, and you know, just and only like four or five minutes in did he go, "Oh, we've got your results back. You've got cancer." And I went, "Oh, I'm good." And he went, "Well, it's not very good, is it?" <laughs> so, so, all right. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and then I asked him his questions. He didn't know the answer because he wasn't the cancer guy. And then it, I had to. And then you just, you know, it was horrible. I had to call my wife and say I've got cancer and my parents. And and it was just, it was really horrible. It was nasty. And and it's a nasty operation. It was, I had stage two, which is good. But but you, they had to cut a third of my tongue out, rebuild it out of my arm, um, which is, is quite, it's just a horrible operation. They have to open your whole face up, cut down here, sort of plumb your nerves and everything and it takes about 11 hours 12 hours Goodness. my lungs collapsed i nearly died it was it was it was actually so your lungs they, collapsed during yeah, the operation yeah it was horrible and they told you after we we almost lost you yeah they did yeah it was quite touch and go actually what um, do you feel when you heard that the whole thing was just weird winged. it was horrible and i couldn't then and then i couldn't speak for three months which as you could now tell i quite like talking so that was odd and they what and there was, was that a, like it was frustrating actually. I had a sort of whiteboard around my neck, you know, sort of Forrest Gumpy kind of. And I could I got really shit handwriting, so I'd try and write things to either my wife or mates, and they couldn't read it, and I get really frustrated. And um, is that really sad? Not really. The whole thing was just really horrible. It was it was I had to have speech therapy every week, and and it was literally because when I was at Cambridge, I did qualify as a primary school teacher as an aside and so I was I'd done quite a lot of teaching kids to read and and this woman was coming in with this literally like Janet and John it was a book 1a the cat sat on the mat and you'd you go and she goes and then she'd record it and then she'd come out the next week and she'd go read this and you was like a tiny bit but she'd go, that's amazing Listen to this, and you're going. That, that's not. That's like I can't live my life. Get. Oh, are you feeling like very? Is it, is yeah, it patronising? Like, oh my gosh, she's applauding me for. I just find the whole thing. I mean, she was doing her job, but I'm like, I can't. That's not a. That there's no discernible difference between last week and this week, and b. This is not good. Do you know at this point whether you'll be able to speak properly or at all, or what do you what do you know? You, you, I mean, the, it's a funny thing, cancer, because it's a numbers game, right? And and this is a good lesson for, sadly, anyone that gets diagnosed with cancer. What you'll get is just some stats. It's a, you've got to very quickly become quite good at the stats. And what they'll say to you is 100 people or 1,000 people that have something similar to you, this is what happens to that cohort. So they'll say 1,000 people that had this, uh, you know, 100 never speak again, a hundred. One of the things with it, you lose your saliva glands, you lose all your taste buds. So you have to have like cans of aerosol saliva, which you have to spray in about every minute. And then your teeth. I mean, it's really it's a nasty cancer. Your teeth fall out. They sometimes have to sort of break your whole face open, and oh, and, right. and it's horrible because your tongue, when you think about it, is very important for talking, very important for swallowing, very important for tasting, very important for kissing. Yeah, it's quite it's quite an important thing that we all take for granted, and so. So you've got all these stats, which aren't, you know, you always, they're not good, the stats. Uh, my surgeon, who was good, 
sort of said, give me three months, we'll, we'll be all right. Um, but, I, you know, it was still horrible. I was being, I, everything was fed. You, you get fed through a tube in your stomach. It was just one conversation when I lost a shitload of weight. But even that was weird because they give the food goes into your stomach and they, you have different, different flavors, different menus. And you'd be going, oh, should I have chicken or. And it goes straight into your stomach. You don't taste yeah, it. You can't I'll taste, taste it, it, but you can smell it. And again, it's just, it was just all weird. Um, eventually, it was fine. And my doctor was great. And I think I had four operations. And I, by the end of it, I could speak. And it was fine. And I was much skinnier, but it took a toll on my marriage. And it was just, yeah, and then, anyway, so yeah, it was horrible, but but a good lesson, and I'm probably better for having gone through that lesson. What would you share advice-wise to anybody going through something similar? One really hard piece of advice, which, again, another of my podcasts. Go for it. Plug away. With the Helen Calcroft, the Dude Actors podcast with Gareth Thompson. So Helen Calcroft, as some of you may know, the founder of Lucky Journals, has had a terrible cancer journey, way worse than mine. And we talk about it a lot on the podcast, and I think I won't. You should listen to it because if you had anyone, because she she sums it up really well. There's a few things. Um, you you end up having to sort of challenge your doctors a bit because what one of the things you learn is there's there's quite often different views about how you treat both cancers and and some cancers are overdiagnosed and overtreated and some very chemo heavy. My guy was all about the surgery. And and I ended up not having to have chemo or radio, which was amazing. And so you, but it it teaches you something that you're not you're not taught before, which is to maybe challenge the, what the doctor's telling you, because each doctor will have their own version of what they're good at or they believe in, and you've got to match what's right for you and what they believe. And that sometimes means you'd have to disagree with the doctor or go, I'm going to get a second opinion. And that's we're not trained like that certainly in the UK with the NHS I think the Americans are much better at that so there's a bit of you know challenge maybe or find something you find a doctor you trust or who sees it your way mm. there's definitely a bit on the stats which is their only stats um, because you can get some really shit stats and you can lose it um, the, the biggest stat that they will tell you or you can find out is the single biggest variable to cancer is actually your what they call a PMA, positive mental attitude, mm. which isn't in the stats. So, so you you kind of go if you look at the stats and go right, I'm mm. going to die, I'm dead, I'm out. That notion will push you into the wrong side of the stats mm. table. If you look at it and go, well, I'm going to be the ten percent, twenty percent, thirty percent, that notion will probably mean you will be. So there's a and it's but it is horrible and but but yeah, it gives you back to the original story about New York and stuff. It makes things like that. It does give you a perspective that, that I now do have, and I've learned that lesson now, and I think I'm a better person for it. I have a much better view of perspective in life. And every time you meet, when you've survived cancer, you meet lots of other cancer survivors, and, and then when you meet people sort of in your life and you find out they're cancer, you very quickly go into, and what was yours? And I met just someone last week. Um, it's a moment at my daughter's nursery, and, and the thing you hear from everybody is that you get a sense of perspective coming out of something like that. And that's a good thing because we all get very bogged down in the minutiae of the day to day, the fact I had a BMW M3 or not, all that crap, which we spend a lot of time on, all of us and some of more than others. Once you've had a life threatening illness and being given a, another crack at it, 
you don't get bogged down in that stuff. Now, that can make you quite an annoying person to live with, as my wife knows now, because you can end up going, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Now, that, that, that's, a, that's my view, because I'm, I'm kind of rebelling up against, is it life or death? But it does give you a, a much better view of how you want to spend your time. Do you want to spend time with the office? Do you want to spend your time with your family? How, how, how much how forgiving you are? I'm a much more forgiving person now both of myself and of friends and colleagues it's it's a it, it i mean helen and i both say the same thing we we're better for it i wouldn't wish it on anyone but but it does give you a good view of life mm. and you take it you take it less for granted there's a weird duality with it which is weird you both take it less for granted but you care more if that makes sense so so you know some people say to me well how come you're still a fat bastard if you're you've had cancer we go well because actually you kind of want to live each life day to the full and you want to enjoy yourself and actually, you know, you've got to get the balance right of kind of carpe diem versus wrap yourself up in cotton wool and and, and it's, it's, it's an interesting dichotomy that, that some people go crazy, right? We know those stories of people that become hedonists and we know some people that become absolutely, I mean, I say cleanliness, that's not a word, but you know what I mean, like just vegan veggie just just super healthy and, and and i sort of alternate a bit but but it's yeah it's a good it's a good lesson but it's a horrible journey mm. well glad you got through it yeah you're here glad you're now. here now talking to us now so brilliantly on the podcast um back to the it's the story it's in parallel to this story oh, gift gap, gift the, gap. The name. so you talked about challenging the doctors about what they were saying yeah you were in the middle of challenging O2 about yeah. the name and yeah it was yeah so it's a funny thing and again hindsight I the, the idea was pretty solid and again just lucky really it was it you know my advice to anyone trying to do anything like this is you know try and solve a problem um, in sort of life or the business with a customer in sight. If you're kind of going, what, what's good innovation? That's what it is, in my opinion. It's, it's either start with a customer going, well, how do we fix something for a customer? Or start with a business problem. In this case, it actually was quite a neat one of both, where you've got customers going, I just want it to work. I don't want all this extra stuff. In fact, I find it quite a tiny bit resentful because it's complex and it's, I don't need it. And similarly for the business, all this stuff's where the money is, right? And these constant kind of arms race with the big brands where is it is it two for one tickets? Is it is it, you know, O2 tickets? Is it tickets to a festival? So if you can take all that cost out and you've got something that the customers prefer, and then the really neat thing was that the device the is all about community and helping each other and the mobile network for people that hate mobile networks. You, you end up with something that, that is quite, um, it should be successful, right? Because you customer insight, business problem, and some sort of the flywheel that's going to make it go. And and, and it, it researched very well. And because we were O2, we could get the one that the most people can't get, which is really cheap airtime. It was all good. And it really was all good. And you know, a lot of it happened when I was in hospital. But the name was a problem for everybody, right? Um, because I wasn't there, all I was doing was like sending text messages to people going, it's, it's too well or we're not doing it kind of thing. Because I, I thought, and this is why I love being wrong, right? It's great to be wrong and be so completely wrong. I just thought O2 
was it. I thought Web 2.0 was cool. And calling it 2.0, and I even did this little animation of O2, the animated sound. So this is, this is, I don't know what we call it, just massive sort of sense of self-belief and, and you know, which is, which I'll still have, but I also might be wrong, right? I, I'm not, I'm no less of self-believing, but I'm also no less ability to, to say I'm wrong, right? And I think that's great because without that level of self-belief and passion, would you have come up with that idea at the conference and gone back to O2 and gone, I've got this genius idea. Four and a half million, it's, please. It's no, 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 not, not at all. And I'm, I've just literally gone through that all in the last few months. Yeah. Sadly, I can't really talk too much about it, but I'm, I'm doing it all over again 15 years later with all that knowledge. And and it's funny, I've just got the funding yesterday, actually. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you. And my sort of team often on this journey have gone, come on, Gav, just, just give in to that. Just, just let that go. And you go, no, I'm not letting that. That's important. And so you hammer it, and then eventually you get it in most parts. And the name thing was interesting because Sally Cowdery, CMO, it was never, it was, it was never going to be called Tua, right? On her watch, right? And and I was kind of going, well, it's never going to be called anything but. And it, what was quite useful, interesting, was it became the argument. So every meeting we had, you'd have the agenda, and it'd be like. You know, business case, target audience, product market fit, tick, 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 tick. And then the name. No. So every meeting was we'd argue about the name for 25 minutes. And all the other just got waved it through. And I'd, I started to realize it was never going to be called 2.0. And I started to agree that it was a name. But I, I realized that let's keep it. It's a good argument to be happy. Well, because <laughs> you can just get other things. Get other and it also gave me time to find a better name, which was GifGaf, which... I liked because it sounded a bit like Gav, which was genius. And it actually, gift gaff is, is a Scottish word that means a mutual gift. Mm. Um, in the old days, if you were riding across the moors on your horse and you wanted a bed for the night, you'd knock on someone's castle door, they'd open the door, you'd go, can I have a bed? And you'd give them a chicken in exchange for a bed. And that was a gift gaff, a mutual reciprocal gift. Mm. Who knew? Cool. Um, so, so it became a sort of a bit of a joke. Uh, and then the final nail in the coffin was Telefonica Opción O2. And for any Spanish speakers listening, and I never get this right because it sounds like I'm being sound like Manuel from Fort Sass, but there is no double F sound in Spanish. Mm. And and G's in Spanish sounds like H's. So gift gaff to a pure Spanish speaker is a bit like, uh, sorry, apologies for the Manuel impression. It's like, he ha? He, he ha? Because there, there's, there's, so you're going, it's called yeah. Gifgaff, and they're going, hey, ha? <laughs> and you, so, so anyway, it, it, it sort of became, a, that became the different argument with the Spanish now. Right. But, but because it wasn't 2-0, Sally and everyone was behind it. So like, it finally, he's through. Of, uh, no, yeah, 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 he's got a not. name, but it doesn't work in Spanish. <laughs> it's not 2-0. <laughs> so yeah, so that was, and, the, and look, for, I mean, I, I was lucky that at the, the time, the business could afford to take the risk that took, they had some money to invest in it. Telefonica were very supportive. Ronan Dunn, who was the CEO, was very supportive. And, you know, again, amazing team who who made it happen. And, and you know, it, it's been very successful. And no credit to me, all credit to the team that built it and ran it. Um, but yeah, it was, it, was, it was a great journey. The funny thing now doing it again is, is on the points of the journey that you're on on the first time you do it, you don't realize either how important they are or not important. Mm. And also you, you don't, yeah, it's, it, 
to do it for the second time now is is really interesting because I, I now know the really important points to the customers, the really important points to launch it, yeah. which at the time you don't know and you sometimes get those things wrong. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask what what are like the differences because obviously GiftGaff was launched fifteen years ago. What are the differences to what you have to look out now now compared to what you had to look at then? So I can't I can't say too much because obviously we I just got the funding approved yesterday. We're we're pre-launch. It's an idea that, it, as I sort of said, it, it it comes from both working in telco for seven years with O2 and Telefonica, spending a year working for Talk Talk last year, doing some stuff with them. And it's a similar, it's it's how I look at things, which is I like to be the outsider. When I joined O2, I hadn't worked, you know, O2 was full of, the, the industry is full of telco lifers. You know, lots of people go from brand to brand. And I was the new boy asking those questions, which is always a good, always good in, in any new job or new industry. It's like, why do we do that? Why do we do that? What are the stupid rules? And what are the rules that, that we impose on customers that they don't really like? And and so that's how I got to the, the gift gaff thing. And the, the the new one is a similar process, really, of going, if you look at the industry now through the eyes of a bunch of people, there are some stuff that doesn't make sense because it's a lot of it's sort of um, you know, historical legacy. And there's some stuff that, you know, the question I love to ask people in sort of research groups is if you had a magic wand, what would it look like? And they'll tell you something quite fantastical, like it should be free or, you know, but, but you know, you can sort of work with that. And so the, the new thing is, is a, is a very similar model to the, to gift gaff of, looking at the market, looking at a bunch of customers, going, hmm, if we could do that differently, it would be better for both us as a business or the brand and also for the customer. And it's that, it's that thing where it gets exciting. So with GiftGuff, taking all the stuff out meant more, much cheaper cost to the customer and the business, but weirdly, and then giving it to the community meant much more loyalty and advocacy. And the new thing is, is that, but in 2023, with a bit more, there's a bit more technology now that we can do some kind of cooler stuff. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of the area it's in, and I can't really say much more than that, but it is very exciting and, and has some amazing sort of customer research and, I mean, unbelievable, actually. Um, and the, what's different now, I mean, I get, they're all these sort of marketing cliches, but they're kind of true. So we're now in Web3 world, so bizarrely, Web 2.0 inspired the last one. The new one's pretty wrapped up in Web 3. Um, and it's it's just, there is no, it, 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 there is no kind of barrier. There is no customer in us and them. It's just a, it's just one thing now. And that's probably the difference is even when we were doing GiftGaff and we, yeah, the, a lot of the marketing was done by the customers and was user generated, but it was still sort of us to them. And I think in the new world, it's just a we're just it's just one big community and and um and everything's got to work for everyone really. Uh, so it's exciting, but it's the thing that you know obviously is on your mind is is if you mess it up, the the kind of the ability to be cancelled as a brand, you know, as a new brand, if you get it wrong and you're inauthentic and you put a foot. I was reading about Bud Light this morning. I mean, there's something down that rabbit hole, but they've lost twenty five percent of their market share in a month because of how just 
and I don't really want to comment on that, but it, apart from, wow. We, what we didn't cover was uh, why you left Gifgaf. This is a company that you, yeah, is your original idea. Really good question. And it's it's a similar answer to why I left the agency, Campbell Doldai, which is, I, I so look, I was, I, on one level, I was the founder of a, of a very successful telco brand. I think the year we launched it won Best New Brand of the Year from Marston Society. It was up in the first year we launched as Brand of the Year against Nike and Adidas. You go, amazing, lots of plaudits. What I hadn't done, because there wasn't an option, was negotiate myself into the kind of equity deal because it was, you know, on the contractually, it was an idea I had on whilst being an employee of O2. It was always their idea. And, you know, there's a point in those processes where you kind of go, look, I've this is amazing. I've done a really good and interesting thing I've learned a lot it's done my career no end of good but uh, to be blunt I'm not retiring on the beach you know it's you kind of go I've got to you know, I've got to sort of take that and now do something with it because I've learned a lot I've got some experience that not people have but but it was it I can't I don't want to be the guy just sitting at gift gaff and you know waiting my years out it was kind of like take this and take the learning and go again. Um, and, you know, Telefonica had gone from being this ex-BT Selmet group of people who were all entrepreneurs like Kath and, and Matthew, who'd, and they'd all done earnouts for Telefonica. And you could just, you know, it sadly happens all the time. The the, the com companies get bought because of the team and the entrepreneurial spirit of the team. Teams do their three or four year earnouts, the team then leave, and the owning company try and turn that company into the, their company, right? Mm happens the world over and I just was in the middle of that and I just remember thinking they wouldn't I couldn't have got gift gift done now and I've learnt what I need to learn and I want to go and put that learning elsewhere and then I got a call to be the zero paper which is actually my great job um and so and so I've, I did I was CMO for three or four brands I I, I had some made some bad decisions or had some bad luck that meant some of those jobs didn't pan out and and then lockdown happened and and then with some you know lockdown wasn't I didn't have a good lockdown he did but I mean I, I I got back into that kind of slightly depressive time I'd been at twenty years earlier. Um, what was going on? It was a it was a much less dramatic version of the same thing of of sort of bubble bursting where you know the New York thing big bubble burst drama and with lockdown small bubble burst which was you know career had gone really really well to that the second iteration of the career you know founder of Giftcalf, CMO of Paddy Power, CMO of Yopa. Did you think at this point finally I've got my career back to that? I did actually I really did great. I really did it was funny there's a circularity in all these things and then and then you know lockdown sort of happened and I I just mistimed some things and I, I you know the short answer is I couldn't get the jobs I wanted so I knew by that stage I thought I was a sort of top 50 CMO and I just wasn't getting the jobs. And then you, then you kind of go like, "Well, is it me? You know, have I have I peaked? You know, there was a little bit of, you know, am I too white or male or middle class or fat or whatever um, or old? I, I don't know. Who knows? It doesn't matter. I wasn't getting the jobs that I wanted and the jobs that I was getting calls about. Are you getting a call about a fire extinguisher business in Derby? to be their CMO and 
I've been, it, you know, you just put the phone there, so so virtually start crying, going, this, this is, this is, this is what it's come to, and so, and and then the combination of, you know, I, my kids in South Africa, um, we didn't cover that. I I I got divorced after the cancer, which was also my kids moving South Africa with their mum. What um, happened there? Um, probably a similar thing, really, which is having gone through the cancer I'd gone through inevitably when you have cancer you, you can't really but help be quite selfish I mean it's I, th I think when I was in New York I was selfish for all the wrong reasons and was self-absorbed and I think when you go through quite nasty cancer you do become self-absorbed and selfish and you hear that a lot right and I've, I've I remember writing an article for GQ gentle plug humble brag um, about this which was sometimes it's worse for the survivors partner loved ones because they don't get all the the energy and the love and the the, the, the it's all about the, the sufferer the patient and they have to pick up all the pieces and in my wife's case look after our daughter and and they don't get that much support and love mm. and and you one thing we all can play when you're a victim of a life-threatening illness is the victim right guess what it's a good role to play and i think again a year of me who i'm naturally quite a selfish and self-indulgent person anyway to then have that on you I think for my wife was challenging and then her dad South African got properly bad cancer like lung cancer asbestos lung cancer terminal and the combination of me being an arse but with a good better excuse than but me basically being a selfish arse for a year and her dad dying in South Africa meant she was like I'm going back with 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 kids and so she took the five-year-old Izzy and my son, who was two at the time, Harry, back to South Africa. When that that was, that was freaking brutal, actually. How was that? Yeah, You've gone from having a hard. family around you to that was really thing. hard, actually, because because I mean it, it was that was that I mean that even now I mean it's been ten years, nine years. I still that that the idea that my kids are on the other side of the world. I mean, you know, we have a we we've got an amazing relationship. We're very lucky because you know we're lucky enough to be able to frankly pay for them to fly around and we see them quite a bit but that 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 that's for anyone who goes through that that's that's really really tough what's it like it, and, and it's because you, you sort of you know my, I think people's natural inclination is to process they want to kind of blame something or rationalize it and I think in this instance it wasn't really one to blame. I mean, some divorces there are, and you go, "Well, you had an affair, or you did this." In our in our case, no one did any of that. If you could blame yourself or blame her, you could process it. But I didn't really blame her, and I didn't really blame myself. But it. How old are the children when they? Five and two, so they're really young. They're really young, and it was just re it was really brutal. I mean, I I I take pride in being a dad. I I it's one of my things I'm pretty good at actually, and I really put lots of energy into them, and I'm really. You know, I don't think anyone's ever accused me of being a bad dad. But it was, yeah, again, lessons learned. And I now feel, it's kind of, I'm now back. You know, I think I've drawn some curves on the piece of paper. I'm definitely, we're now going back up, which is good. Brilliant Next. to hear. Brilliant to hear. And lovely that, you know, you're in a position where you can fly and see the sea of your children. How old are they now? That uh, I was also 16, my son's 13. They're coming over in a few weeks. We're off for pizza. Um, okay. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, we're, I'm so lucky for a few reasons. One is we managed to actually have quite a good divorce. I mean, 
good divorces, bad divorces. I mean, again, tip for anyone getting divorced, just be nice. Just be, be as nice as you can be. Forgive your partner and just literally suck it up. I mean, I was lucky. I was so close to being a and getting all lawyers and barristers and and thank God the day before we do the court, I had a little moment of we're not doing that and ended up just having the nicest divorce you can have wow. in those circumstances. And is that does that come from just resentment? You wanted to sort of get back at the person and just I'm a quite a competitive person. You kind of I, I have a strong sense of right or wrong. I kind of thought I didn't I hadn't done anything wrong. And and that's another lesson is it doesn't matter. You know, don't stop trying to be right. There's a lovely thing of just do the right thing don't try and be right and I think a lot of my mistakes in life and I've tried to to be right because I think I've got a moral high ground and that's me at my worst when I'm like he's clearly wrong or she's wrong they're a go figure whereas actually that's not helpful and it's only my opinion and actually just doing the right thing when you can is the right has got to be right forward so so yeah in divorce we had a good divorce. Very lucky that I had enough the financial resources to mean that we could see each other a lot. I'm very lucky that my ex-wife, my kids, my new wife, my kid, everyone gets on really well. And you know, uh, you know, my my wife is an amazing stepmom, and we, you know, my life now is amazing. Actually, I mean, it really, you know, it really is. And I look back on some of those awful things that happened. But I'm, you know, I'm not glad, but I'm much better for it. And you got to take what you get dealt with and try and learn and move on and be nice to yourself. That's another thing. It's easy, you know. If you're if you're quite a strong, powerful character, when that character sort of turns in on you, like that's can be quite bleak. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's all good. I mean, you know, really pleased to hear that. Like Dan sounds, sounds like yeah, in a good, in a really good place, and the company. I mean, I'm really, really happy now. I've got an amazing life. I'm, I'm fulfilled. You know, lovely wife and kids, and 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 have some really good lessons. That's, you know, I I, I feel quite resilient now. I feel I've learned a lot. Um, much more to learn, but yeah, it's it's been a good run, and hopefully, plenty more to come. We'll look forward to the new one launching yeah, when it does. Sure. Where, yeah, when, no, where yeah. will it launch? It will launch... Gosh, this is what my investor said to me yesterday. It was literally the final question. He went, come on, when's it going to launch? I, I, I don't know, but it's it's going to be uh, soonish. Exclusive. It's slightly, Exclusive. It's slightly commercially sensitive, right? So it, it, at some point, soonish, when it's ready. Thank you for being so specific there. Very Cannot specific wait. Where's ready? And I, you, you will you will hear about it. I I um I think it, I think it'll I think it'll land quite well. Okay. Um, we get to the end and uh, a little, little su- we do a little summary and a little poem to close things. Uh, so I think your story is just it's so inspiring mm. because you have been through a lot and it's. It's painful when you have something and it's taken away. Everybody can relate to that. And you've had a great life starting off, loads of luxuries and just fantastic experiences. And then it's like, you know, all the happiness and joy is just taken away in this moment. And then getting your career going and then it 
feeling like it's fallen off. And just this like give and take and give and take is really hard. And I think you've you've you have persevered and you have got through it and you never gave up and just thought, well, I'm just gonna you know just wallow in pity now. You get you get you had maybe some moments of pity, but you fought through it. And I think for <laughs> talk to my wife. Yeah. <laughs> So I think for anybody, you know, going through a difficult time and a tough time, you're someone who can show that, you know, get exercising, stop sort of uh, uh, numbing the pain. Yeah. And speak okay. to people, yeah. get help, you know, do take action about it, deal with those negative thoughts and just get out of that space, whatever you need to do to do it. And I think that's really inspiring and very excited to hear of this yeah, new business venture that seems to be fueling joy and happiness. Who's clearly someone who enjoys having, you know, a big project to get out there in the world and bring something to the world of genuine value. You've brought so much value to the world through GiftGaff. Like people have loved it. It's very affordable. It's great communities. And um, yeah, thanks for sharing your story. Thank you very much. Thanks. I appreciate that. For sharing. No, no, thanks. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a funny, it's, I've never, done the whole thing and because often you are to talk about certain bits of it it's it's it has been a journey it's hard to summate I, I mean I think you know like I said just be nice to yourself own your own your fallibilities talk more you know and, and just be just be nice to yourself just just sort of you know and and but back yourself and get up and go I'm gonna have another crack at this and mm -hmm. and own your mistakes and Surround yourself with people you love, and and just just yeah, just just realize that you know we've all got flaws, and you kind of just got to manage them, and and that's the journey really is to to deal with what you've been dealt with and try and make the best of it. Yeah, love that. So, and I've crafted another poem. <laughs> through what on we one day of the day, the frame on the wall. <laughs> Go on. So if there's anything from your story. It can be taken that being bold can get you further. Speaking up will always be a murmur. Also, it's important to fight for things that you believe in. And life will throw obstacles at you. You just have to bob and weave them. For our man here, Gav Thompson, you can throw at him your worst. He formed his own brand for putting forward what you love and the customer first. To live life in boldness, you must always sidestep those thoughts of fear. And above all else within your life, always appreciate that it's good to be here. Amazing. Not bad, right? Amazing. Got a bit teary there. Thanks, mate. Well, you're welcome. That, you're welcome. That's, thank you. That's Well, thanks a lot. I've really enjoyed the chat. I mean, it's uh, it's funny. It's funny because lots of people just go, you're very confident, big ego, whatever, which underlying true. But I, I also, bizarrely, it's a funny my my life my my whole personality is full of conflicts and contrasts contradictions and the big ego confident thing is also matched with a a slight imposter syndrome and 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 kind of like I can't believe we've spent so long talking about me and I can't believe that that couldn't be any use to anyone but 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 I hope it is I think I love the format I love you guys I love your poetry and and yeah it's been a real honor and privilege to talk and I hope somewhere in there somebody will find something of interest and uh yeah um i really appreciate it thank you pleasure they absolutely will thank you for coming did you get did you get the shoes to train oh oh God, we have to do Grip this shit. 
Yeah, no, my, I've got two things, watches and um, trainers. Yeah. I uh, used to be cars, and then I got got over myself. Um, I do I do like Nikes. Yeah. And once you get into it, I mean, man, they're f And when you meet other people, there's a... Uh, there's, the I'm first not ever handheld shop. Nay. Crypt Let's check. show the watch. The watch. And this is a, an Amiga Snoopy, which is for watch nerds out there, quite watch nerdy. Uh, and those are some Pride Special Edition 9720s, which uh, I'm proud to wear them. I believe in Pride and I believe in Nikes. Show the side. These bad boys. There we go. Yeah. Ow. Yeah. I love how we've had a, a podcast about how material things are not what life I'm, is you about. Are. And we're ending on. <laughs> and now we're ending on how amazing this watch and do. <laughs> I'm managing them better. <laughs> Okay, rumbled, busted. <laughs>